So grab a Bible. Um, you're going to need one today. You need one every time. Uh, but as I've told you before, sometimes notes are on the or verses are on the screen. Sometimes they're not. That is not laziness. That's intentionality because I want you to have a Bible and have it in your hand. And I want you to walk out of here holding what's in your hand, having looked at it. So there's Bibles in the back if you need one and don't have one. If you want one, they're free on your phone as well or whatever. But if you want one in the back, grab one. Grab two or three. There's Spanish ones as well. Take them. But Ephesians is about right there. So I don't know what page it is in the Bible you're holding, but it's way back in the back. Uh, Tenth book into the New Testament. And only a few from the back end. And we're working our way through Ephesians and we're talking about true Christianity. Um, that's kind of been the theme and that will be the theme as we go through it. What does it really mean to be a Christian? And Christian has become an attitude or a belief system or a religious behavioral uh, model or something. But that's not what Christian is. Christian is a person. Christian is a uh, a new creation is something different. Last week, we talked about unconditional adoption. Uh, heavy, but awesome. So if you want to look that up, go back and, and look up the uh, video or the podcast and you can hear about it. Or you could just read back in your Bible there. But if you want to study it, you can. This week, though, another key that comes to being a true Christian is eternal security. Eternally secured. That's what we're talking about today. So in Ephesians 1, verse 7, Logan already read it. I'm not going to read it again, um, but we'll walk through it. And I talked a few weeks ago when we were first getting into this about New Orleans. And I was talking about how uh, New Orleans was probably a lot like Ephesus during Paul's time. Um, but New Orleans is pretty famous every year at one time of year, and that's the time of year we're walking into right now. I don't know if you know what for. Do you know what for? Yeah, Mardi Gras, exactly. So, Mardi Gras is the most immoral, out-of-control party in America. Uh, that would be my summation anyway. I've been one time. Obviously, it was not as a pastor. Uh, but I have been once. Um, I've been to New Orleans many times, but I've been there for Mardi Gras once, and it is absolutely insane. There's pretty much nothing that doesn't go on in the mass amounts of people and crowds. What you may not know is Mardi Gras is tied to a Christian tradition that dates back to medieval Europe. You know what it is? It's the start of Lent. Yes, the start of Lent. So Lent is a a Catholic holiday. Several Christian denominations still celebrate it. Um, And I have nothing against Lent, so don't hear that wrong. But what Lent basically is, is no meat or alcohol, depends, depending on what you do, or maybe it's a chosen thing of your choice, I don't know. For 40 days leading up to Easter, you're kind of sacrificing that or fasting it. And the original idea was a great thing. It was to commemorate Jesus' fast for 40 days. And Moses and Elijah had both fasted 40 days. But predominantly because it was headed to Easter, it was to commemorate Jesus' fast. But. Much like so many other things, it grew to become a requirement. Because something that you have to observe if you're going to be godly. And then some early Catholic leaders especially deemed it sinful not to observe it. And if you were strictly loyal with it, the most loyal, like the most extreme with it, would get extra merit from God. 
or some kind of special blessing from God. Now, I know that's not the way everybody sees it today. I know people celebrate it today, so there's no stones thrown. I'm just saying that's what it turned into. But it sure is funny to me that preparing for a Christian fasting event begins with the most all-out sinful wild party there can possibly be. Like, let's just blow it out on the highest level as possible because for the next 40 days, does God really honor that? Uh, You know, and honestly, does it really matter? Does it matter for salvation? Not just Lent, but any of these things. Does it matter for salvation? Does it Does God really require that kind of thing to gain his merit? Whether it's Lent or your own decision to do it, whatever it may be. As long as I can remember, Christians have battled about security and salvation. As long as I can remember. And I spent, you know, a decade and a half in the drug world and having nothing to do with church and all that. But I'm 51 years old, so the rest of those years I've been involved in church on some level. And as long as I can remember... Christians have argued about it or struggled with it or fought about it. So what, what, this is what we must do. This is what we must not do. But we're saved by grace. It's not our works. But this is what we can't do and this is what we have to do. And why is that? Why is that? I'll tell you why it is. Because Christians still sin. How do we cope? How do we, how do we reconcile that? My sins are paid for, but I still sin. So, 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 so somewhere in here, there has to be a don't do this, do that that's going on because I, because I still sin. And surely some of those sins must be too serious for God to excuse. I mean, this, that sin, no, no, no Christian could do that. God can't excuse that. Therefore, you're not a Christian. Uh, or there's only so many. Like, well, you, you can't just keep on doing them. Or there's only so many times you can do that same one. Are you re- you really back to that? Back to the vomit, are you? You're right back to the vomit, dog. You're right back into all that. You can't, surely, you can't be saved and still keep going back to that. Um, and again, I'm not condemning acts of devotion here, Lent or otherwise. What I'm saying is, today, I want you to see that you got to let go of the bondage, man. Because that's what it is. You, you gotta let go of the fear of what might happen if you don't blank. Or what might happen if you do blank. Or the hope that if, if I do this, it'll work. Whatever work means, right? You gotta let go of the fear that you're gonna come up short with God. If you're a Christian. If you're a true Christian, you've got to let go of the fear that you're going to come up short with God. That maybe you missed something, and one day you're going to stand in judgment, and God's going to expose it. Oh, sucker, you thought you were good, but look at that. You know, oh, Well, you know, I was cool with you in the beginning, but you just kept on doing that. You've got to stop thinking that you need to earn his approval or gain merit from him. Or stay saved. Stop. So here's your flag post. Um, as Christians, we need to stop questioning our salvation because we're already eternally secured by grace through the plan and the will of God in Christ. 
That is not scripture. That's Dave summarizing what we're reading, okay? But it'll help you stay where we're going. As Christians, we need to stop questioning our salvation because we're already eternally secured by grace through the plan and will of God in Christ. True Christians are already his people. You're already his people according to his plan to establish his kingdom. And you're going to see in these four verses eight times it says he, him, his. The clearest reason for trust and eternal security is because this is all his work, not ours. So Paul, continuing his running thought, he, he, he said last week we talked about it, or the previous verses, having been unconditionally adopted as God's children according to God's predestined plan from before the foundation of the world. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Listen to me. Those words right there need to be the loudest, brightest, most bold words in all of your Bible. If there's any one verse you want to memorize, memorize that right there. Write it down, circle it, twist it, make it huge. You need to read it. You need to read it again. You need to read it again. And when people come to you and say, yeah, but, you need to bring this verse up and say, well, I'm going to tell you what the Lord says. All right. We don't hope for redemption. Is that what it says? We have redemption of our souls. You're not hoping for redemption. You have it. Redemption comes from three similar Greek words that kind of work together, intertwined to come up with one idea biblically here. And that is to purchase someone or something, like a slave in particular, to purchase something or someone and loose or free them away so that they can never be reclaimed. Do you understand what I'm saying here? That's what that word means. It means to purchase particular idea is a slave, to loose or free them so that they can never be reclaimed, period. That's the idea. We are bought out of the slave market, y'all. Bought out of sin. Bought out of shame. Bought out of guilt. Bought out of hell. Like it or not, there it is. We're given freedom never to be claimed again. It can't come back for you. And again, it says we have, not we will have so long as you don't blank. It don't say that, does it? It doesn't say we will have redemption as long as this never happens again. That's what we would say. That's not what God says. It's not something we're looking forward to either. Look, if you're a true Christian, it's something you already possess. It belongs to you. That's what have means, right? It's not through our good deeds either. It's not because of any great thing you did. It tells you what is, what, why. It's because it's in Christ through his blood. And we'll come to that in a second. But the beautiful thing is you also have forgiveness. It's one thing to be redeemed. Somebody went and bought you out. But it's another thing that they would forgive you. You know you can't make anybody forgive you? You can make people do a lot of things, but that's one thing that there's absolutely no way to do. Even if they tell you, I forgive you, that doesn't mean they did. You cannot force anybody to do that no matter what. They have to do it from their own heart. So right here, you have the fact that not only have we been bought into freedom, but we've been forgiven. We're not just square with God here. We're fully embraced and loved and forgiven. That means you're not on probation. 
You're not working your way back to his approval. You're not doing penance for all the bad things that you're not doing any of that. You're already forgiven. It's done. It's past tense. Have redemption. And that is forgiveness of your sins. You have it. The tool that made it all possible is not how many times I pray today. It's not how much I fast. It's not how much I memorize the Bible. It's not any of those things. Not even me. The tool is the blood. It says it. I'll give you a couple of verses here because the blood is a heavy word, and we're going to take it apart. But First Peter 1, 18, Peter wrote, Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. Revelation 5.9. John wrote that they'll see in heaven. They sing a new song. Worthy are you to Jesus, to the Lamb, to take the scroll and open his seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Blood, blood. In the Old Testament, there's an argument that people were saved by keeping the law. And maybe you've heard that. How are people saved in the Old Testament? If they're saved by Jesus in the New Testament, how are they saved by in the Old Testament? There's no difference. No one has ever been a saved in the history of humanity apart from one word, faith. Grace through faith. God's grace through your faith. That's all. That's it. So what do you mean? Well, they weren't they supposed to keep the law? Yes, they were supposed to. The only problem is how many of them did? Zero. If they kept the law, yeah, they'd have been saved by it. But nobody did. That's the point. Nobody Kept the law. So how are they saved by faith then? Well, because they had the law, they knew they'd broken it. They knew they broke the law. They knew they were sinners. And they believed God's word to be true, that they were guilty. And that God's word is true and there's consequences for that. So they acted in faith. Out of obedience, they did what God told them to do. And they brought sacrifices to the temple for their sins. Only really three things, bulls, goats, slash lambs, or doves, depending on how much money you had. If you had enough money, if you if you were wealthy, you're bringing a bull. If you're poor, you're bringing a dove, and it kind of mixed in between. And it was up to you to establish based on faith that you were being honest with this thing, based on what you were bringing. But that's what had to happen. But the problem is, that blood's not good enough to take away any sin. That blood was never taking their sins away. It just showed that they were faithfully trusting that God would act on their faith and forgive their sin. And every year they did it again and again. Why did they have to keep doing it every year? Were they obeying the law? No, they were breaking the law. That's why they had to keep doing it every year. Because they continued to sin. So they continue to break the law. They continue to be exposed for the fact that they sin. And they continue to bring these sacrifices year after year after year. They never took away their sins. They only showed their obedience and faith and that God would act on that. They believed and pass over their sins at the time. What it also did is it began to reveal what God was planning to do. Not just to forgive their sins, but to pay for them in full. To totally and entirely pay 
and separate them from their sin. That was the plan. And they didn't see it. They didn't know it. But that's what was going on. And ultimately, he's going to remove it completely. All right. But he was planning to pay for them. How's he going to do that? God himself would take on the sin of his people for all time and embrace that death. His blood. Not the bulls, not the lambs, not the sheep, not his people, his own blood. The most expensive price ever paid for anything, but more than sufficient to cover the cost. Can you imagine, like, the joy and the frustration of Satan through all of this? Like, I think about this all the time. He must have been ecstatic and then furious all at once. Adam sins, right? Adam sins and sin enters the world. And now all of a sudden mankind's, you know, God's own image here, mankind, has the same fate as Satan and his angels. Eternal death, spiritual death, separation from God eternally. God's own words, right? Death would be the result of sin. They chose sin. Death is the result. How can God, being a just and holy God, honor his word, but also redeem those he loves? How does he do it? Surely Satan has won this time. Surely he has figured it out. He's locked God down. It's got God's arm twisted behind his back. It's tap out time, right? God can't just overlook it because then he would be unjust. God can't just refuse to enforce it because then he'd be a liar. How does he fix it? God can't allow a bull or a goat or a dove to fully pay for it because that wouldn't be justice. No matter how perfect the animal was, it wouldn't be just imagine a man who's killed children standing before the judge and saying, well, I'll offer a perfect dove in place of each of those children. And then I'll see you later. How many people, especially the families of those who have lost, would have said, "Okay, that sounds good to me. That's perfectly acceptable. It's not. It's not the same thing. That's not justice. He, 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 it would not work. That's also why. And this is a key. That's also why Jesus must be God. If the Son of God is some other being, like little g God, or if the Son of God is a birthed being, descendant of God, such as some very large Christian people teach, Uh, If that were true, then God cannot allow his, quote, son, in that case, to die either. Because that would be noble, but that's not justice. Killing your kid for what they did is not justice. The only way that God is going to be just and also redeem is for the one who is sinned against to do the time for the one who sinned against him. The only way is that the one person, in this case God, who was sinned against, that he alone says, I will do the time for what you did to me. Justice is still served. 
he still remains truthful because what did he say the penalty for sin is? Death, which means if I'm doing the time, I choose death. And that's what he said. The price is blood. Can't live without blood. Death means bleed out. Leviticus 17:11, an amazing verse in the Bible. Way back during the time of Moses, God told him, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by life. You understand what he's saying there? Life is in the blood. And he's saying, I am giving my blessed God speaking. Not Moses. Moses wrote it, but he's quoting God. God says, I have given it for you on the altar. I have given it for you. Way back there, he was telling them. They may not have seen it, but he was telling them, I'm going to pour out my blood on the altar for you, which means I'm going to die for you. But these are verses, listen, they don't carry any weight at all. I'm serious. They carry no weight. They're just words on a page. Unless you know you're a sinner. Well, I mean, that might be heavy, but I'm just trying to tell you it's a fact. They're just words on a page. It might as well be a Disney story. Dark one. But if you know you're a sinner, man. Like Psalm 25, 11. I, I, I love it. The psalmist wrote, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. It's great. Do you hear the heart of whoever it is saying that? I'm not, it doesn't matter who it is. I, don't, I'm, I intentionally don't want you to know. I just think about it a minute. Does it, do you feel the weight of who's saying that? Psalm 51. You may know who says this, but after doing probably the most heinous of crimes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your grace. Steadfast love. That's the Old Testament term for grace. Your grace. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Look how many times he says this. My transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin. It's in my face. That's whatever before me. I can't get away from it. It's in my face. I know who I am. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. You hear his heart here? I'm not going to lie to you. I prayed that one more than once, word for word, but directly from my heart. Matthew 9, verse 11, jump to the New Testament. Uh, Jesus here, he's being addressed by the Pharisees, and the Pharisees See what he's doing. And they said to Jesus, why does your teacher, to his disciples, I'm sorry, right in front of Jesus. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because, but Jesus heard it and he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, don't miss that, have no need. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You can highlight it. I came to call sinners. If you're not a sinner, you have no need of him. What he's saying, I have uh, those who are well have no need of a doctor. Now, the Bible will tell you you are mistaken. All have sinned and fallen short. But if you can't know that, then words like this next passage have no weight. But if you do, and then you hear this, 
Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, many of you know it, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He removes them. How far is the east from the west? It's an infinite distance. That's the point. You can't get farther because it's always going in opposite directions. And that's how far he has removed our sins from us. How? How can he do that? Memory's got to be just, right? Can't just say, hey, uh, you know what? My, I'm going to go and take that away from you and just throw it, throw it out there. He can't do it. Oh, he's a loving God. He's good with it all. That's not what love means. We talked about that another time. But how does he do this? He paid for it. Paid for it in his own blood. This is also why there's only one way to heaven. Because it's his blood that gets us all there. Those who are going, that's the only way you're going. It's his blood. It's his own blood. He's not a way. He's the way. Because it's his blood. If blood in general could get you there, then the bulls, goats, and doves, and whatever else might have worked. Or maybe you could murder somebody, and maybe that had worked. That's not the case. It's his blood. So he has to be the only way. And the other thing, too, is becoming a Christian, as I mentioned before, it's not a religious choice that you're making. It's not what's happening. It's by the blood of Christ. It changes your identity. It changes your bloodline. It changes your home. Heaven's his kingdom. And It's ultimately, this blood on you is ultimately a letter of citizenship. That basically your visa is going to expire here on earth. Because now his home has become your home. It's not the other way around. You're temporarily here now. That's home. Where he's at. His home is your home. It's not just, heaven's not just this place for great people. Heaven is his. His kingdom. The blood also proves our guilt. We aren't just neutral, as some people think. Oh, you know, I'm not so bad. I'm, I'm not so terrible. I'm okay. I'm kind of, you know, it's all right. You're not, you're not neutral. Nobody's neutral. That level of bad is irrelevant. That doesn't mean anything. When death and hell are the sentence, the cost to redeem is as high as it can possibly be. And if you think I'm wrong, just don't die. Just don't die. When death comes to you, just tell them, yo, you made a mistake here because I'm neutral. I'm neutral on the matter. I haven't really done anything bad. I'm not a sinner. Just tell him when he shows up. The cost to redeem is high as possible, but he paid it. The blood of God himself. It doesn't make you perfect. It makes you paid for it. Say that again. It doesn't make you perfect. It makes you paid for. And I know I'm heavy on this first sentence, and that's okay. The other stuff is quick. This is the money. The test to know if you're redeemed. Is that me? Am I forgiven? Am I redeemed? It's not by how perfectly you live. That, That doesn't mean anything. It's not by how 
how many things you do do or don't do. It's by how sin makes you feel. By how sin makes you feel. If sin don't bother you at all, well, that's a problem. If sin makes you feel bad, that's no guarantee either. But if sin makes you feel like you are hurting Christ, if sin makes you feel like you are disappointing your father, if sin makes you feel nauseated like I can't do this, cannot be part of my life, if that's the case, then you've got strong evidence that you are a redeemed, forgiven Christian. So what if I do sin now then? What do I do? Then you go to him and you confess it and listen to this word. You accept forgiveness. You don't beg forgiveness because you already have it. You accept it. You go to him and you confess it and you accept the fact that he's forgiven you. And then you continue to turn from it, which you ought to want to do because you don't like going to confess it. But you accept the fact that he's forgiven you. You're a child now. You're in the family. He already paid for you. You're already free. You're already adopted. You know, it it ought to feel like you're the person with the whip. You're the Roman soldier with the whip. You want to keep on sinning? He'll take it. Hit him again. I don't mean to be uber heavy, but why don't you think about it that way? You want to keep on sinning? It's paid for. It's covered. Hit him again. It's not that you just get to keep on doing it, but it's paid for. Your behavior is never going to affect your identity as part of God's family, but your sins can certainly affect the quality of your relationship. It's never going to affect your identity in the family of God, but it can sure affect your relationship within that family. All right, so let's move on. Verse 7, we'll get the rest of it. In verse 8, we'll move on quick. It says, according to the riches of his grace, verse 8, which he lavished on us, past tense, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. This is quick, but according to riches, It's not from riches, it's according to riches, which means he didn't just write a check. It means it's in line with what he does. It's in line with who he is. It's his nature to do it. He himself is rich in grace, and it accords with what richness and grace would do. Lavished means he overpoured. Like that. He overpoured grace. In huge amounts, you know, when an inmate is released, if you've seen it in the movies, when an inmate gets released in the movies, you always see him walk out of the prison with this little bag or whatever, and they stand out front, like, looking down left way and the right way and just kind of, where am I going or what am I doing? Uh, What's next? That's not the way that happens. Uh, I can't speak for every prison in America, but I know a lot of them, and I don't know any off the top of my head that do that. Pretty much every prison, you have to have a place to go. Jail's different. Prison, I'm talking about prison. You have to have a place to go. It already has to be lined up. I remember in Georgia knowing guys on the inside who had done their time. They were free to leave. Their time was done, but literally had nowhere to go. So until they had that figured out, they had to stay in prison. And they didn't want to stay in prison. They just did not. They'd been in a long time. They had nowhere to go. So until they figured out where to go, they're, they're, they're stuck there. Paul is saying that God has not just freed us from our sin and released us, but he's anticipated that release 
with a plan. He's there and he's lavishing more grace. He didn't just get you out, man. He's meeting you with the golden ring. He's meeting you with a buffet. He's meeting you with a home. He's lavishing grace on you, blessing us with wisdom and insight, it says, being part of a purpose here, having a future with gifts and blessings that just never stop coming, eternal gifts that can't ever be lost. How amazing is God? Wisdom is the gift to understand the will of God, he says. His plan, what he's do- doesn't mean you know all things. It means you understand, you have wisdom to understand what he's doing in Christ. You look at the cross and you don't see a naked criminal. You see the son of God for the sins of the world. That comes from wisdom. Not everybody sees that. Fewer and fewer see that in our world. But you do. That's that's wisdom. And insight is the ability to practically apply that to your life, to make that wisdom drive who you are and, and what you do. He says mystery, making known the mystery of his plan. That's nothing mythical. That's not some weird, twisted, you know, odd stuff. It's progressive revelation basically it means that god that, that that truth that god that who he is that these things are progressively becoming more and more revealed throughout scripture as he goes on you ever seen a ghost movie i won't name any in the outside chance that y'all go watch one and dave didn't spoil it for you but you ever seen a ghost movie there's a few where the whole time you're seeing People, these people who are haunted by ghosts, but then in the end they find out they're actually the ghosts, uh, not the not the haunted. They're the haunters. Uh, pretty twisted stuff. Or or like uh, there is a movie I'll tell you if you haven't seen The Village. I can recommend it to you because for the most part it's completely clean. But in The Village, you can't. If you've seen it, you know. If you haven't, that's fine. Watch it. You can't possibly anticipate the end of that movie. Cannot possibly anticipate the end of them. When you see it you, for a minute, you're even lost. Like, wait, wait, what, what's happening? But then all of a sudden, it all it all kind of makes sense. You're like, oh, okay, so that's why. So that's why. And then you want to go back and you want to go back and watch it again. Like, I want to go see this again and see what what I can pick up. And what's even better than that is getting people who haven't seen it and watching it with them and watching them try to figure out what's going on because you know. And watch them figure it out. And then when they see it and they get it, and, and and then there's this, like, excitement moment, you know, when they suddenly understand it. This is the mystery of the gospel being revealed to us. Abraham didn't see it. Not like we do. He He could see a lot of it, but he couldn't see it all. Moses could see more than Abraham saw, but Moses couldn't see it all. Jacob could see it, couldn't see it all. Jesus' own disciples couldn't see it until after the cross. And now we have the privilege, he says, to have wisdom in order to understand and insight to share the mystery with others. Watching them see it. Watching them get it. That's what, that's what the story of God was. You know, if y'all were here for that, we went through the whole Bible, the story of God. That's what we were doing. We already saw the end. But we're going back and we're reading through and we're watching the mystery unfold, knowing where it's going. And we're picking up things we may not have seen the first time. And we're remembering stuff 
And, and it's exciting when you see people come in. I'll, I'll call him out because I love him. And he knows that Trey, who came in along the way, and Trey had not seen a lot of this. And if you know who he is, that's cool. And if you don't, that's fine. He came in and he, he saw things he'd not seen. He was like, wow, I didn't know this. And there's pieces of the puzzle that you start picking up and seeing. And in the reveal, the grave is empty. The grave is empty. Wait a minute. He did this on purpose. Sin's paid for. Not by the sinner, but by God himself for sinners. And then his kingdom's arrival begins. The birth of the church. His kingdom's arrival starts. A mystery in scripture is simply something that has been hinted at or commented on or prophesied or maybe even directly stated but in such a way that it's not fully understood. Jesus outright told the disciples that he must die. He outright told them, you can read it, that he must die and rise again on the third day, and they had no idea what he meant by that. Surely they would have never imagined that meant a Roman cross, naked, with nails. No chance they would have ever assumed that's what he meant by that. And even if they did, they could have never conceived What that meant spiritually, that that sacrifice would imply redemption of all until after. And after the mystery is revealed and they see it and they know and they get it. It wasn't clear to previous generations, but to us it's been, as it says, made known. God the Son, literally born to a virgin perfect plan for redemption of sinners, the perfect life as a perfect substitute, sinless, even from before birth, sacrifice of the cross, the death and the grave, the absolute victory of resurrection, the gospel, that's what it is, and the birth of his church and the invasion of his kingdom on earth. All of that. Verse 10, he says, is a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, the end result of his plan. So when does this happen? Quickly finish this. It says in the fullness of time. So words differ in different translations. Uh, Logan read from his translation, which is slightly different. But if you look at them, pretty much all of them differ a little. That's because that as a plan for in the translation I use, ESV, uh, is one Greek word. It means like administration or dispensation, like a management, an oversight, a stewardship, and time, their fullness of time. Time is plural, so it's fullness of times. So basically what's being said here is throughout history, God has ordained times, administrations of time. Or dispensations of time, however you want to look at it. He's administered his kingdom in different ways. And we know that's true. With Adam, he was face to face until the fall. Uh, you can skip forward. We can look at them all. But you can skip forward to Abraham. With Abraham, he chose a family. And he worked through one family. He was involved in the whole earth, but he worked through one family. With Moses, it went from one family to law. And God working through law. At Christ's time, law is Obsolete law is done with and Christ begins to work through grace, the church, his kingdom rule on earth. And that's the way it's been. That's the time we're in. But what he's saying is all of that is leading to a 
event called the fullness of times. When all of these times come to a conclusion, what's that going to be like? Well, he tells you complete unity in or with Christ. That word unite, it means to bring back again, to bring back around again. Uh, it's implying a return to something, a return to unity, a return from separation to unity. What does that sound like? Eden. It's a return to where it was when man was with God before any separation, before any sickness, before any anger, before any hate, before any loneliness, before any death, before suffering, before pain, before hate. One God, one kingdom, both heaven and earth united. That's the picture. That's the fullness of times that was set in motion through what Christ did. Listen, if you're a Christian here today, you have redemption. Past, present, future, you have it. You have forgiveness. It's yours. And all the work to achieve that was his. While we were still sinners, he died for us. So listen to me, and I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just telling you, stop worrying about your salvation. And start sharing it with other people who don't have it. Stop worrying about your salvation and start sharing it with other people who don't have it. And if your issue is sin, then stop. Easier said than done. I know that's another that's another sermon, but just stop. Well, stand up with me and uh, I'm going to pray. And Deidre's going to come. We're going to sing one more song. Um, if, listen, if you haven't moved your life into the hands of Christ, then look, that's where this all starts. Redemption and forgiveness, they come, they come from putting your faith in Christ. Just as they did in the Old Testament by faith, so in the New Testament by faith. Can you trust him? Can you trust that what I'm saying is true? Can you trust that what he's saying is true? Can you trust that his sacrifice for your sin is enough or do you feel like you've got it covered? If not, you need to tell him. You need to tell him. Just tell him. There's nothing complicated about it. You don't have to repeat after me. You say it in your own words. I know who I am. My sin is ever before me. Forgive me. Redeem me. Make me new. Let me pray. Lord, I, I, I do pray that if there's anybody here today that hasn't made that decision, that they do it today. God, I pray that for the rest of us that we're faithful to you. Because of all you've done for us. And I know sometimes when we return to sin, believe me, Lord, you know I know. When we return to the same sins or we get caught or trapped by the same thing again, it's so frustrating. And the first thing we do is start doubting what you paid for with your own blood. And God, I I don't want to sound self-righteous. I struggle sometimes too. But Lord, renew in our hearts the knowledge that you love us and you paid for us the most expensive price ever paid and that we belong to you and that we can always come to you, confess and repent. Lord, we love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name.